1: Politics, a weekly podcast on british politics from the financial times i'm sebastian payne digital comment editor and this week we will be dissecting the local and regional elections on thursday and what they mean for the conservatives labor SNP, england wales and well the whole country i'm delighted to be joined by our top flight range of commentators our political editor george parker the ft chief political commentator philip Stevens. Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, and Tony Blair's former political secretary, now Labour commentator, John McTernan. Thank you all for joining. So, elections were held this week across Britain, and the results were a bit of a mixed bag. Labour's vote share dropped by around 6%, which is generally rare for a leader who's just taken over a party, but the catastrophic collapse did not occur, and the party held on, in the words of Jeremy Corbyn, in England and Wales. But in Scotland, it was a very different picture, with the Scottish Tories jumping into second place and Scottish Labour collapsing. In London, at the time of recording, it appears that Sadiq Khan is on track to be the first Labour London mayor in eight years and the first Muslim mayor of London. So, George Parker, let's begin. I'd say it's probably broadly a good day for the government, you could say, that the Tories aren't really talked about much, but they had a pretty solid result here.
2: Yeah, I think um, notwithstanding the results in London... It's been almost the perfect night for David Cameron and you could see it on his face when he went up to Peterborough in the sunshine there surrounded by his supporters because for two good reasons. One is that the results in Scotland, a remarkable result for the Conservatives, finishing second, pushing the Labour Party back into third place. The last time they were in third place in Scotland was in 1910 and that is going to make it extremely difficult for Labour to claw back that ground in Scotland and to mount a challenge to the Tories at the next general election. And the other thing is the fact that the results in England were bad for the Labour Party, but not so bad that they've given Mr Corbyn's critics the ammunition they need to try to push him over the edge. And from David Cameron's point of view, that's the perfect outcome, because the last thing he wants is for Jeremy Corbyn to be pushed under a bus at this juncture.
1: Philip Stevens, looking at the Scotland result here, you know, we've had to vote, we've had the Scottish Parliament for a while now. And I, this is an interesting way about how the Scottish Conservatives have come back to life. They've had a 11 point increase in their vote share in these elections here. And Ruth Davidson, who's the charismatic leader of the Scottish Conservative, seems to have painted herself as the unionist candidate here, hasn't she?
3: Yes, I think that's so. But I think we may be seeing the beginning of the resumption of normal politics in Scotland now. The referendum of 2014 has hung over everything. But you get the feeling now that the Parliament in Scotland has got real powers and has got Tax raising powers, serious tax raising powers, as well as spending powers, that people in Scotland may be beginning to focus not just on the union question, but on the question of how well the SNP have governed. They're still in government, but they've lost some seats. And looking at the Tories as a plausible alternative, not, if you like, for Westminster in that sense, but for Holyrood. So I think now we may be beginning to see if you like, two or three party politics in Scotland with the arguments about the things that matter to people, health and education. And in a way, I think one can, we're back to the future. In the 1950s, the Tories prospered in Scotland, not as conservatives, but as unionists uh, interested in the government of Scotland.
1: Because George, this has been an extraordinary thing that throughout the campaign in Scotland. A lot of the talk has been about will there won't be a second independence referendum? And now the SNP have lost their majority. They could still do some kind of bodge deal with the Scottish Green Party if they wanted to. It feels like the idea of another independence referendum is going to be off the cards for a little bit. And as Philip said, things will return on to domestic matters and the SNP's record, which is quite shaky in Scotland.
2: Yes, shaky in terms of its record on, on education in particular, the health service to a certain extent, but public service delivery generally. And uh, I think it was very interesting when Philip was there talking about the resumption of normal politics. And this is something David Cameron had very much in mind when he agreed to give tax-raising powers to the Scottish Parliament, that the Scottish Conservatives could appear as the low-tax party. And I think what makes things particularly difficult for Jeremy Corbyn in terms of clawing things back in Scotland is that they tried Corbynista recipes in the Scottish elections. They promised to put up income tax by one pence. They promised to get rid of the Trident nuclear deterrent. And it plainly didn't work. So you wonder where Jeremy
1: Corbyn goes from there. So, yeah, a resumption of normal politics in Scotland. I've already seen, though, Corbyn I saying, ah, but they weren't really that left-wing in Scotland. We actually <laughs> need to have a big shift to the left. Um, I think it was Paul Mason who's written that today. Yeah,
2: well, uh, people who remember the 1980s as I do, I was at university, I remember Tony Benn coming along to the student union and saying that, The reason the Labour Party lost in 1983 under Michael Foote was because the party wasn't sufficiently left wing or they didn't say it
1: with quite enough conviction. It's the perennial argument of the left. If only we'd been a bit more left wing, we'd have done it. So I suppose the question is, if Labour had been a bit more left wing in these elections, would they have done any better elsewhere in the country, Philip?
3: No, I don't think so. And I think the important point for Scotland and the referendum is that it's off the table, but only as long as we vote to remain in the European Union.
1: Brexit could change all that.
3: Brexit would change the dynamic dramatically. But Scotland is basically quite a small C conservative country. The trick that the SNP has pulled in recent years has been been to sort of go across the spectrum and be conservative in some places and quite left-wing in the others. I think Ruth Davidson and the Scottish Conservatives are now exposing that trick, as it were, I think in the rest of the country, as George said, this has been a great night for David Cameron. It's been an iron law of British politics that the governing party loses heavily in local elections, in between general elections. He's defied that. Labour has held on, but done
1: really pretty dismally. Well, I actually dug up the statistics last night because everyone was saying this, and it's really fascinating. If you look at 2011 which was Ed Miliband's first year as opposition leader, and it was just after the 2010 general election, Labour gained 857 seats. David Cameron, his first year as opposition leader was 316, and it goes onwards, and if you go back to even John Smith in 1993, he gained 111 seats. So Labour losing about 30, George, which is what we're looking at at the time of recording. Um, It's not a great result, but it's not quite bad enough for people in Labour to say, well, hang on a minute, we need to do something about this. So it's going to be business as usual. Now it's back to the EU referendum.
2: Yeah, there was enough political cover in the results to help Jeremy Corbyn. The fact that the Labour Party hung on, in Jeremy Corbyn's words, to count Labour councils in unlikely places like Southampton and Exeter and Crawley and Hastings in the south of England gave some sort of sense, perhaps, that actually they were holding their own in you know, parts of the country. We wouldn't expect Jeremy Corbyn to do well. But, as Philip says, I mean... It's it's a really, really poor set of results. The Labour Party should be powering ahead at this stage in the Parliament. First year in the Parliament, all governments do the most tricky bits of their manifesto. The Tory party isn't even delivering the tricky bits of the manifesto in a competent fashion. You know, we've got a U-turn today on academies. We have the U-turn on disability benefits, on tax credits, Sunday training. You can, you, the list goes on and on. I mean, and the parties, the Conservative Party is falling apart over Europe you can't imagine a more propitious set of circumstances for an opposition party to fight an election.
1: I'm sure you were delighted, Philip, to see that Neil Hamilton has arrived back in at frontline politics, sort of, in these elections with UKIP making their breakthrough in the Welsh Assembly. Now, a lot of people have written off UKIP saying they're not going to get anywhere, they're a done party, particularly after the referendum. But they seem to have sort of, they're still there on the fringes of things. They've taken bit of a chunk out of the Labour vote in the north. And there is a concern, speaking to some Labour people last night, that this is a problem that is still there. It's a demographics problem of Labour not appealing to those people. Does UKIP's breakthrough in Wales mean anything?
3: Well, I think it's essentially a reflection of the proportional voting system or semi-proportional voting system in Wales. We can see from the opinion polls, from the way UKIP has fared in European and other local elections, there is a constituency there which has, if you like, outflanked the Labour Party in some of Labour's old constituencies. It's there. I think even Nigel... Farage, or is it Farage? I'm never sure, would struggle to say that this was a breakthrough for UKIP.
1: I'm pretty sure he has actually said that. (laughs) Well,
3: well, he's uh, clutching at uh, straws to say that. But and to see these sort of rather sort of formatory retreads appear in the valleys of South Wales is sort of curious, to say the least. So I don't think this is bandwagon. The future or otherwise of UKIP depends on the referendum. Either way, I don't think it has a huge national future, although it obviously has a constituency.
1: Finally, George, obviously the most significant thing probably people will remember from this election is the London mayoral race, that it's been a very vicious campaign between Sadiq Khan and Zach Goldsmith, and it seems that Sadiq has won by a decent margin, and Zach's campaign, which was criticised very heavily by people in neighbourhood for having racist tones to it, and also by senior Conservatives as well. What, is there going to be any kind of recrimination for the way this was run, and why was it run this way, do you think?
2: Well, I think the recriminations are already starting. You've seen Andrew Boff, who was leader of the Conservative group on the Greater London Assembly saying that the Tory tactics were outrageous. We have the Tory deputy mayor of London saying it's going to take a long time to clear up the mess of this campaign. And the truth is, the Goldsmith campaign was foundering. He was making little headway. They appeared to be losing. And they played the oldest card of the trick. And I think what is refreshing, if you're a liberal with a small L and believe in communities living alongside each other, is that Londoners seem to have shrugged their shoulders and just treated Sadiq Khan as as they would have treated any other politician.
3: I think the only person who will be unhappy with this result is perhaps Donald Trump, who um, has promised to ban people like Mr. Khan from entering the US if he becomes president. I think actually this is, you know, it's a sort of, in a way, whatever the party politics, this will be the result that resonates beyond Britain. You know, London, to my mind, the world's greatest city, a multicultural, pluralistic, tolerant city has elected a Muslim mayor. That's a statement, uh, and a very important one. And it's very, very good that a despicable campaign against him based on religion, if not race, was defeated.
1: It's a fascinating thing, George, and I'm sure we'll see dissection over the next few days about the Goldsmith campaign and why it was running the way it was. And people are already beginning to point to Linton Crosby's firm, CTF Partners, which has been advising the Goldsmith campaign. But the thing about Zach was that he, that's not what he was. You know, you did a big profile in the mm. FT this week saying that you know, he was a very different character to the one that appeared in this campaign. Was that a mismatch? Was he pushed into it? Or was he just ill suited to run for mayor of London? Well, possibly. He's been an effective mayor of Richmond out in West London, but it's a very
2: different kettle of fish to trying to represent the whole... I think during the whole campaign, he's given the impression of being slightly diffident, slightly almost unbothered about whether he wins, lacking the passion. Now, he's the candidate. He's in charge of the message going out. He could have said, we're not going to run this kind of campaign. Maybe he was just too diffident. Maybe he just didn't have, I don't know, the will to stand up to what he was being advised to do. But I think one of the things we've seen in this election is is a relatively high turnout for a London mayoral contest. We're hearing about 44%, which is much higher than the last contest between Boris and Ken Livingstone. And I think that's partly down to the fact that lots of Londoners have come out to vote specifically because they didn't approve of this kind of campaigning.
3: Politicians can't blame their campaign teams for the campaigns. It's if a politician can't decide... On his own or her own campaign, they don't really deserve to be standing for election.
1: These local elections were painted as Jeremy Corbyn's first major leadership test, well, after the Odin by-election last year, which Labour won, to the surprise of some. When he became leader of the party last summer, many claimed that the new politics, the straight-talking, honest politics, would bring thousands of new voters to the party. This would build momentum and lead to a sweeping majority in 2020. Now, that doesn't seem to have quite happened at these local elections, but nor has it been a catastrophic failure that many moderates in the party have predicted. So, if you're in labour and you want to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn because so you think he's going to be a disaster, what do you want to do? So, John McTurn, I'll put that question to you to begin with then. You're someone who's called right from the off for Jeremy Corbyn to go because you think he's toxic at the ballot box. Now, you've got to admit, he's not done as badly as you probably thought he would today. So, what happens next? Just
4: because a disaster isn't utterly disastrous, doesn't stop it being a disaster. The line of defence, which is that it's not as bad as it might have been, is not really a good one, given that you now can see from today as results that if Labour stood in the general election on these numbers, Labour would do just about as badly as Ed Miliband. But the next election won't be on these boundaries. It'll be on different boundaries, and those hurt the Labour Party. So you've got to have a brass neck to claim that these are great because they weren't utterly disastrous. They're bad results and they show no progress in the key seats, in your Ipswiches or your Redditches or your Carlisles, the places that Labour needs to win. If Labour wants to always come second, these are perfect.
1: We heard some of that brass neck last night, Jim, when John McDonnell described the situation as complex. It's a complex situation in Scotland. It's a complex situation in Wales, which was a nice bit of spinning there to change it. And Jeremy Corbyn has said that Labour's hung on in Wales, so. This is not language of making progress of the type John would say Labour needs, but nor has it been a disaster and plenty of the Corbynites have been out in the media today saying, well, we are making slow progress because Labour increased its vote share from the last election. Does that stand up at all? It tells you an awful lot about expectation
0: management, that these guys are able to go out there with a straight face and claim that this is a good set of results. Basically, the fact that Labour was going to go seriously backwards in Scotland was not going to make gains in Wales and would go backwards in England, was already in the price. And therefore, when, particularly in England, the losses were not as great as expected, they were able to say, look at us, this was fine. But the one fact you need to know, and I don't want to sound like a kind of cephalogical nerd, the one fact you need to know is that outside of general election year, no leader of the opposition has presided over a reduction in councillors since 1982, outside of a general election year. And therefore... On that level, Corbyn's performance is arguably the worst for over 30 years. And if you chuck Scotland into the mix as well, it's appalling. And yes, in Scotland, we knew that this was coming. It's something that's been... It's a cake that started baking years ago. And I don't think that anybody else could have turned that around in the speed. You know, Corbyn's only been there for nine months. But he went out there. He said, yeah, we can win in Scotland. He used the phrase win. He made it sound as if his brand of Easter Anti-austerity measures, putting up tax, opposing Trident. This was going to take off in
1: Scotland, and it just hasn't. We'll come to Scotland in a moment, but the point is, as I said to John, what does this mean for moderates in Labour? Because, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, there's no sign of a coup coming right now because we're so bad. It was just a little bit stagnant in a way.
0: They're like rats caught in traps, desperate to escape the situation they found themselves in, gnawing every which way, absolutely frustrated, unable to move unable to work out a plan, unable to agree when to move, unable to agree who the next potential leader could be. It's also a kind of kamikaze mission for someone to step forward and be the stalking horse. And people have talked about Margaret Hodge doing it. She hasn't denied that report. But does Margaret Hodge, who has enjoyed the popularity of being the anti-tax avoidance crusader, who's been MP for all these decades, does she really want the wrath of 200,000
4: hard left Corbynistas who've joined Labour since last summer? Let's watch that space. Margaret Hodge is perfectly capable of facing down 200,000 rabid lefties. She faced down left lefties in um, Islington Council when she was leader there. She's a tough operator and she will do what is the right thing for the party. The real problem, the the kind of question that hovers over this, goes to a group of people, the PLP, who know there must be change but hope there's a way that it can be painless and they don't need to be involved. And the truth, as Stan Greenberg um, said at a recent seminar, is that he said, parties only change after a civil war. There is no clean way to remove a leader or to change a leader. There has to be a battle. And in a way, it's almost Shakespearean, the right leader for the Labour Party will be the right one who seizes the crown. It won't be done in meeting rooms. It will be done by doing it. And... People are ignoring a gigantic fact on the ground, which is that Sadiq Khan is going to be the mayor of London. Third largest personal electoral mandate in Europe after the president of Portugal, the president of France. Power of patronage. Tony Travers' presentation on this takes six different PowerPoint slides to show how many positions he can appoint to. Budgets, housing, transport, planning, economic development. He can bring people together. He can do things. And Boris has shown you can run a very good campaign against quite a popular leader of your party and a popular prime minister, as he's done with David Cameron. Imagine what Sadiq could do if he wants to use the position to actually build himself uh, to show this is what real Labour looks like.
0: And I think there's an analogy with Scotland and the SNP as well, in that if Sadiq is able to achieve things in London, he can say, look, it's all thanks to me. If he's frustrated because he doesn't have the right powers, he can say, it's those Tories in Westminster and Whitehall, I blame them. And one thing we've seen with Sadiq is he's incredibly ambitious, he likes to be all things to all people, and from his vantage
4: point in City Hall, he'll be able to carry on doing that for years. Yeah, look, Paul Keating said, always bet on self-interest because it's always going to back itself.
1: So I'm going to come on to um, Scottish Labour here. Who, John, you were former chief of staff to Jim Murphy, who was the last leader of Scottish Labour for Kezia Dugdale. Um, it was an appalling night for Scottish Labour. You know, there's no two ways mm-hmm. looking at it. And I'm sure even when you were working um, up north of the border, you couldn't have seen that Scottish Toys were going to have this revival in the way they have under Ruth Davidson, who, as we've said earlier in the podcast, a very impressive figure. What does that mean for the future of Labour? Can Labour win a majority if it doesn't recover in Scotland? And how does it go about that? Now, I've already seen people saying Labour wasn't left-wing enough in Scotland. Labour is not offering a coherent enough Corbynite vision for Scotland.
4: The next election will be about whether the Tories lose a majority, not about whether Labour wins a majority. And the Tories can perfectly easily lose a majority. But to turn to Scotland, Labour framed the wrong proposition. It assumed the country was left-wing and offered a tax increase. The SNP tried a tax increase in 2003, got humped, and have never talked about tax increase ever again. Scotland's a middle-class country, a prosperous middle-class country with lots of white-collar workers who don't want to pay more tax. Workers don't want to pay more tax. And Ruth fashioned the right thing. She knew, and never pretended that it wasn't going to be the fact, that voters were going to give Sturgeon a government. The question was, under what terms? So Ruth just said... I'll hold them to account. I'll keep them honest. And voters did what they wanted to do, which is they wanted the SNP returned, but chastened. Labour missed that. The focus groups must have been off. Although I do know from some of the focus groups that Labour held that people were saying that. They weren't listening to Labour. They would listen to the thing. There needs to be a bit more balance. The one-party state is a worry for people. Ruth exploited that. And Labour needs to look to its successes it won a seat from the SNP in Edinburgh, in Ian Murray's constituency. There's something there about the appeal of Daniel Johnson and Ian Murray in Edinburgh, South Edinburgh, to middle-class voters. Labour kept her seat. In Dumbarton, Jackie Bailey stood against the party, stood against the union, supported Trident, supported the deterrent, and she won her seat. Standing for quite traditional Labour things, almost Blairite things, strong defence against tax increases, and for the union, might be the right place uh, for Labour to actually go. So. The new songs, maybe the old songs.
1: Well, you can imagine, Jim, that's John's vision, and he's going, you know, that's the sort of thing that he believes will win Labour more votes. Is there a view in the party in that that's what it needs to do north of the border? What's going to happen? There must, is there going to be some kind of, you know, investigation into what happened there, or will, will Labour just move on and keep strolling along as it has been in Scotland?
0: I mean, this might sound a little bit banal, but the success of the SNP in the last few years has been about identity nationality, is about Scottishness and that's something that the SNP has just cornered the whole market for and it's left the other parties floundering in its wake and until the mood, the national conversation and mood changes in Scotland, Labour's in a, a really dire sort of straight up there and I spoke to one Labour person today who just said these results are basically David Cameron must feel like Christmas has come because as we discussed earlier, not quite bad enough to push Corbyn out, it leaves him there but still really bad, and you now have this structural problem where Labour used to be able to harvest 40, 50 MPs from Scotland every year without even thinking about it, and now it has just won. And it feels to me like future general elections, unless that changes, they are going to be reruns of last year where you just have the Tories saying Labour's weak, they're going to be enthralled to the SNP north of the border, and Labour totally failed to, to rebut that argument last year, and they're going to have to find arguments against it.
4: Yeah, look, the electoral geography does not favour Labour. But Labour cannot rely on any vote banks anywhere. Labour will win when Labour finds a way to mobilise England. And if England votes for Labour, and England can be won for Labour, because the Tories have only got tiny foothold in the north in seats like Carlisle. Those can come back to Labour. Labour did well outside London in the south. There's something going on in Southampton, there's something going on in, in Plymouth and Portsmouth. There are strengths in municipal labour outside London, not quite Blairite in many ways. Again, as well, municipal labour is a strong base. So labour has a chance to rebuild, held on to Crawley and increased the majority in Crawley. There are things to be examined about how you rebuild. But basically, labour has to have a project for winning England. And if you can win in England, you don't need to worry about governing with the SNP or not. You don't need to rebut those things. And let's let the SNB be trapped in this debate about whether they want to call for a second referendum or not.
0: And I think fundamentally as well, people vote for parties that look together, professional, managerial even. If you look at SNP, they never talk out of turn. They're like a shoal of fish. It's kind of scary, whereas Labour all over the place, fighting each other, philosophical differences, personality differences, Mm -hmm. historical differences... One MP, Neil Call said to me today that Corbyn needs to get out of the bunker. There's just this feeling about this kind of isolated leader with people around him who don't necessarily know what they're doing. MPs turn on each other until they can just deal with that. Winning the whole country seems um, a very distant prospect.
1: And we saw that again today, John, which was extraordinary that Ken Livingstone, who is currently suspended from the Labour Party, appeared on television several times and yet again started talking about Hitler being a Zionist. And it's just absolutely unbelievable that you have someone that keeps appearing on TV. And for me, that crystallises Labour's communications problem. The fact that he keeps doing, he keeps saying these inflammatory things toxic things and nobody seems to be able to stop him.
4: i tell you what will crystallise Labour's communications problem is when the rigged NEC controlled by Corbynistas reinstate him into the Labour Party and dismiss the comments he's made today as being made when he wasn't in the Labour Party, so therefore not able to be held as evidence against him. I absolutely anticipate that that will happen. If Ken had friends, they would tell him for his mental health to retire from politics. He does not sound as though he's in full possession of his faculties.
1: And just finally, Jim, one last question before we wrap up for this week. We talked about the idea of a coup before. That talk's not going to go away. We're now entering into the EU referendum. And it's going to be a question of how much Mr Corbyn steps up, how much he does in this campaign. He's been quite reticent so far. If it was a Brexit vote, if it was a closed vote, do you still think Labour and peace could move against him this summer?
0: So There was this extraordinary story today in the Daily Telegraph suggesting that Jeremy Corbyn was planning a trip to Istanbul next month and he was going to go to Turkey and he was going to make the case for Turkey joining the EU, which would allow millions of Turks to sort of instant access to Britain. And the whole thing was astonishing. It, he's either completely naive and he believes so strongly in that that he doesn't care that it's going to mobilise loads of pro-Brexit voters, Or it's an incredibly cunning plan whereby Jeremy, we all think that he's a secret Eurosceptic up to a point and this is actually his idea for destroying torpedoing the whole project. I have no idea which it is. I suspect it may just be
4: naivety. It is naivety. He's not cunning at all.
1: Good for It's good to get clapped by that one. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next Saturday for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast presented by me, Claire Barrett, the editor of FT Money. The Money Show comes out every Wednesday and you can download it at ft.com podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?